Well, it's a delight to be here again. I uh, mentioned that was two summers ago uh, when I was last here. I had a handout on uh, the judgment seat of Christ. And I don't suppose anyone here remembers that, that handout. The judgment seat of Christ. Well, this is a different handout. You were kind to me the last time. I thought, well, it, 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 it went fairly well last time. Well, why not try it again? Uh, just to build down your expect- expectations, um, the handout is on prayer and healing. And it's from James 5, 14 through 18. You might want to turn there in your Bible. James 5, 14 and 18. It's a very difficult passage. Let me start out by saying that. It is a very difficult passage. It's, it's, uh, it is filled with uh, theological and interpretive landmines. And so I'm going to very cautiously work our way through it and uh, try to uh, show what James wants us to do in response to this passage. And we're going to keep it fairly informal. After all, it is a handout, right? Uh, so if you have a question, just raise your hand and I'll, I'll pause and let you ask your question. Now, I may not answer it right then. I may say, well, we're going to tackle that later on or we'll save that till the end. But if you have a question, ask it. And at the end, I hope we'll have time for you to ask whatever questions you feel that uh, might be lingering after we've gone through it. Um, I appreciate your pastor. I appreciate him as a student, and uh, I appreciate his wife and their children. I'm delighted that they have a chance to be away and visiting uh, the family in Iowa, and I pray for them. I pray that uh, the Lord will give them rest and relaxation and a sweet time of fellowship and just refresh them. And so it's it's a joy and delight to be able to serve in this way, a small way, to uh, allow Pastor Jacob a chance to be away. All right, James chapter 5. I'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible. Uh, I believe Pastor Jacob said that uh, you folks uh, uh, use that regularly. Is that right? I I hope that's the case. (laughs) Good. Okay. All right. So let me just read the passage, and then we're going to go through the handout. And uh, I trust it will be profitable for us. So here's the passage. It begins in verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. 17. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Now, it's my understanding that this is the passage that we are to go to 
when asking, asking the question, what kind of prayer does God hear and answer with healing? What kind of prayer do we find in Scripture spelled out for us in this passage specifically that we can anticipate that God will hear prayer, praying for healing for someone who is sick and healing, God will hear and answer that prayer. And I think James answers that question for us. It's my understanding from this passage that there are four elements in the prayer that James spells out for us that God answers with healing. Let me say that again. There are four elements in the prayer that James uh, uh, commands us to pray. He's commanding us here. There are four elements in this passage with prayer that God responds with healing. And so I want to draw our attention to what those four elements are because that's the kind of prayer I want to pray when someone's sick, anticipating God will hear and heal that individual. So that's, that's the focus. That's, that's, the, uh, that's the design. I, I give you a little bit of the introduction there. We're going to kind of skip over that. Uh, I'll let you take a look at that uh, at another time. So let's, let's cut right to the second page there. And let's begin with I, what I understand is the very focus, the controlling theme in this passage. All right, so we're page two here. And it's under the title, Controlling Theme. And I think it's that statement in verse 16. The effectual prayer of the righteous can accomplish much. The effectual prayer of the righteous can accomplish much. I think that's James' theme in this passage. I think he's encouraging us to pray. And he's informing us that if we meet the criteria that he outlines for us in this passage... That's the kind of prayer that can accomplish much, and specifically in the context of healing. So whatever I say this evening, I want you to keep that thought in mind. The effectual prayer of a righteous person. I think the word man there is generic. It can be referring to a man or a woman. So the effectual prayer of a righteous person can accomplish much. That's the focus that James wants us to remember as we go through this passage. Whatever ups and downs, whatever challenges this passage has, that's what I want us to keep in mind as we go through it. Now, we're going to discuss the key interpretive issues. And the first question we're going to ask and answer is, well, what kind of sickness does James have in view here? And you've probably read this passage a number of times. And you're probably saying to yourself, well, wait a minute. You know, I read the passage, I'm assuming he's talking about physical sickness. And I I would agree with you. As we read this passage, it seems to me, as I read it, that the natural reading of the text, he's referring to physical sickness. And I think everyone would agree with that, but here's the tension. Here's the tension. Look at verse 15. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. The prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. Now, some have read that and say, well, wait a minute. 
we know for a fact that when we pray, not everyone who's sick is healed. We know that. And yet James 5.15 says that the prayer of faith will save the sick, will deliver the sick. So they come to the conclusion that some other kind of illness is involved rather than physical sickness. So they come to the conclusion, well, it's, it may be an emotional disturbance or maybe a spiritual problem. Could be a psychological or emotional uh, difficulty that this individual is face, facing. You know, I don't know if that really solves the problem. Redefining the word sickness than other than physical sickness. I'm not sure that solves anything. In fact, if we look at this text here, and we look at the words James uses, they are used individually and together in the New Testament and specifically in the Gospels for physical maladies, physical sickness. Let's just notice a couple. Uh, beginning here in verse 14. Is any among you sick? That word is commonly used in the Gospels, commonly used elsewhere in the New Testament, of physical sickness. Now, granted, it can have other than physical sickness in view, but my point is that the predominant use of the word is for physical sickness. We go on. Look at verse 15. There's another word for sick. We'll restore the one who is sick. Notice also in verse 15, and the Lord will raise him up. Both those words, now in verse 15, are found in the Gospels, found in the New Testament, commonly found for physical illness. And I'm assuming that's what James is intending. And then we have the word healed in verse 16. He says, confess your sins and pray for one another that you may be healed. So those words, individually and collectively, are found in the, in the New Testament, especially in the Gospels, with the prominent meaning of physical sickness. That's my understanding of what, how James is using it here. He's talking about praying for someone who is physically ill. Now, granted, verse 15 sounds like a very bold statement. The prayer of faith will restore, heal, deliver the one who is sick. We'll cover that, but I am convinced that James is talking about physical sickness. He is talking about physical illness. Go ahead, Jonathan. There are two things going that will be going on, particularly in verse 16, but his focus is on physical illness. Now, what, what we're going to find out in verses 15 and 16 is that sin may be the cause, but it is not necessarily the cause. That's where we're going to We'll get into that. But the word uh, you have there in um, verse 15, you said you have the word save there. Yeah. To save or to deliver. Well, that word is used not only of spiritual salvation, but of deliverance from some physical peril. 
what does Peter say when he's walking in the water and he starts to go down? He says, Lord, what? He's not talking about forgive my sins, Lord. What is he talking about? Preserve my physical life. Yeah, exactly. So it can have that meaning. That's the point I'm making. Does that help, John? Okay. Now, the second question we find in verse 14, who are these elders and why are they being summoned to pray? In verse 14, it says, if anyone, is among, if anyone among you is sick, let him call for the elders and let them pray over him. So who are these elders? And, and why are they praying? Well, let's, let's take those questions in sequence here. We know from the rest of the New Testament that the word elders is used synonymously with the word pastor or overseer. We know that from First uh, Peter chapter 5. We know that from Acts chapter 19 and 20. And that's my understanding of what uh, James has in view here. Notice he calls them the elders of the church. So James is directing the one who is sick to ask the elders, that is the pastors. Now when James wrote this letter, the believers were gathering in synagogues, also referred to as churches, they James uses the word synagogue in chapter 2. He uses the word church in chapter 5. So there were house churches, if you please, and they had an elder or a pastor who was overseeing that local assembly. And so James is saying, if anyone among you is sick, let him ask the elders or the pastors to come and let them pray over him. Well, why, why, why is he inviting the elders? Well, it's, the assumption is that the pastor is a godly individual who can pray as a righteous person. Remember our, our, our focus, the controlling theme, the effectual prayer of a righteous person availeth much, accomplishes much. So the assumption is that the pastors are godly individuals who can pray the prayer that's being, that's being described here who are godly men who are able to pray the kind of prayer that James is describing here. That's why they're called. We should note the reason why they're called, or the implication is that the individual is too sick to go to them. I mean, if, if, if that's not the case, he could just go to the pastors and say, would you please pray over me? But also in verse 15, it talks about him being, or 16 I think it is, being raised up. What does that mean? Being raised up from a bed of affliction where he's he's not able to move he's, he's, his, the sickness is a serious illness so the elders are called as uh, uh, pastors who are godly individuals who are able to pray the kind of prayer that uh, James has in view and we know from that fact that they're summoned that the individual has a serious illness and uh, too sick to go to them and have him pray over them now perhaps the most controversial question, and I think you probably have been waiting for me to get here, is what is this anointing? What is this anointing? I mean, we read there in verse 14, anointing him with oil. Now, I want to ask and answer two questions. Is the anointing commanded? Is the anointing commanded? That's the first question. The second question is, is it instrumental in the healing? Is it a factor, a condition for the healing? Two questions we want to ask about the anointing. 
I know those were the two questions you were wanting me to ask, so those are the ones I'm going to answer. All right, first of all, the word anointing is not a command. It's not commanded. Look at verse 14. He must call, there's a command, and they are to pray. There's a second command. All right? Those are both commands in verse 14. The word anointing identifies an activity done in connection with their praying. All right? So he is to call the elders. He is commanded to do that. They are to pray. They are commanded to pray. And in connection with their praying for him, here's an activity that they do at the same time. It's not commanded. It's an activity done in connection with their praying. I'll say that one more time. It is not commanded. It is an activity done in connection with their praying. Does that make sense? All right. Sir? That's correct. The anointing is something that James mentions that they do in connection with their praying. The second thing, is it necessary for healing? I mean, the first question, in a sense, doesn't matter <laughs> if the anointing is necessary for the healing. If it's necessary, then whether it's commanded or not, we're going to anoint, aren't we? If it's required for the healing, then that's what we're going to do. But notice what uh, James says in verse 15. He says, if you're sick, call the elders, secondly, and let them pray. And while they're doing that, anointing him with the name of the Lord. And then what does he say? What does he say about healing? Notice verse 15. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. He says nothing about the anointing. In fact, it's not mentioned again at all in this passage. We know from verse 15, then, it's the prayer of faith, not the anointing that James draws our attention to that's instrumental in the healing. So the anointing is not, that something, is not something that is commanded and is not a factor in the healing. So now, your question to me right now, I'm not a prophet, not the son of a prophet, and I work for a non-profit organization, but you're... But your question to me is, well, should we do it now? That's your question. I know it is. Should we, should we anoint today? And James is telling us it's fine to do that. It's not commanded, but he's assuming that the elders do that when they pray for this individual. Therefore, his assumption gives us freedom to do that. Now, here's my caution. Here's my caution. If we do that, if we anoint, and, and the scriptures allow us to do that, and in, in fact, I assume because James <clears throat> assumes the elders are doing this, that we are, it's, it's not only allowed, but something that we probably should be doing. <clears throat> not commanded, but something that James assumes the elders are doing, something we should be doing as well. But here's, here's my point. If we do that, it must be absolutely clear. It must be absolutely clear that the anointing is not a factor in the healing. It's, there's nothing magical about the anointing. It is not a factor in the healing. So, if someone were to ask me, would you anoint me if they're sick, or would you anoint this sick person with oil, I'll say, I'll be happy to do that. Just like James 
we find in the book of James. I'll be happy to do that. But let me make clear, that anointing is not something that's magical. It is not mentioned in Scripture as a factor in the healing. It isn't. So then now the question, well then, what is it? What is it? Now, here's where uh, I'm going to let you do a little reading on your own. We're at the bottom of the uh, uh, second page now. What is the meaning and significance of the anointing? We ask and answer two questions. Uh, Is the anointing a command? No, it is not. Is is it instrumental in healing? No, it is not. So how does it function? And you you basically have two two options here. And I'm not going to go into them. Last time I tried to go into them, I put everybody to sleep. I'm serious. Could have heard a pin drop. So I'm not going to go into them. I told myself the last time I went through this, don't go, don't go there again. All right. It could be medicinal. It could be medicinal. What did the, uh, what did the Good Samaritan do uh, to the fellow who got beat up and robbed and left to die on the, on the road to Jericho? What did he do? He took what? He took oil and what? He did. He took oil and why? He poured it in the wounds. All right. That was both for... Um, What's the right word? To kill the germs. What's that called? Cleansing, antiseptic. And also to uh, help in the healing, to soften the tissue and allow the tissue to heal. So it's a possibility that, that the anointing uh, has that function, medicinal. I don't, believe that's, I don't believe that's the case. That's not the position I hold to. My understanding is that the anointing is symbolic. It's symbolic. And I think we have a parallel in Mark 6. I mentioned that. But I think the arguments are really in favor of the anointing being something that's symbolic. I mentioned that this individual was so sick that he could not go to the pastors. They had to come to him. That being the case, I'm not sure pouring oil on him is going to help if he's that sick. Now, if he's beat up like the the, uh, fellow who got robbed on the way to Jericho, fine. But if it's some other kind of illness, oil is not going to help. But anyway, we do have the anointing of individuals. And what do I mean by symbolic? Well, in the Old Testament, I want you to follow me now. In the Old Testament, kings were anointed. Literally, oil was poured on them. And what did that, that's, that symbolized their being set apart to God for the purpose of functioning as a king. That's what it, that's what it, that's what it was all about. He poured oil on the king. David had oil. Samuel poured oil on David. It set him apart unto God for God's divine purposes to function as a king. We had prophets anointed with oil, setting them apart to function as prophets. We had priests anointed, setting them apart to function as priests. So what what is the symbolism here? The elders are anointing this individual, symbolizing their desire. Follow me here. Symbolizing their desire to set this individual apart unto God. That's what the anointing was in the Old Testament. Setting him apart unto God for the purpose of healing. That's what it symbolizes. That's exactly what it symbolizes. When you anoint somebody with oil, in this context, you are, you are, you are symbolizing your desire to set this individual apart for God to intervene and heal. All right? So a king was set apart to function as a king. This individual is being set apart for the purpose of God's intervening to heal. When I was uh, first in seminary, way back, (laughs) 
uh, <coughs> our, uh, the seminary where I attended was moving from an older building to a new uh, campus, from one campus to another campus. And they had sold the old campus to uh, a Assemblies of God church. And they had a, had a huge auditorium where we would, uh, our student body would meet and we'd have chapel. And I remember, uh, for some reason, going up to the uh, pulpit in the auditorium there. Remember now that we had sold this building and the Assemblies of God had, were the owners of it. They, they let us meet during the week until our campus, new campus was finished. And then we, we, we made the transition. But I remember going up to the pulpit in this huge auditorium, and in, inside the pulpit there was a flask of oil. And they had healing services, and they would use the oil. And so that was sort of, I thought that was sort of interesting. There's nothing wrong with using the oil, as long as we understand you know, what its function is and what it does and what it doesn't do. Uh, they had a different view of oil. They, they, they saw the oil as having special properties that, uh, w- that were necessary for healing to take place. And I, I've just argued against that, haven't I? Shake your head, yes. <laughs> I've argued against that. Anybody have any questions about the anointing? Any questions on the anointing? I want to leave that one behind us. Any questions? Okay. Let's go to page three. Does James assume that sin is the cause? And that that brings us to verse 16. Actually, the end of verse 15. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Now, the key word there is if. If he has committed sins. And the construction that James uses means it may be, but it is not necessarily so. It may be the cause, but it is not necessarily the cause. Does that make sense or not? I've got a couple of passages here that will, I think, help. Um, John chapter 9, we know that that individual... um, John 9, I'm sorry, John 5, we have an individual who was paralyzed. And our Lord healed him. And his words to that individual after he healed him says, Go and sin no more unless something worse befall you. And the thought would be that in coming to the Lord, he, was, he had repented of his sins. The Lord healed him. Then the Lord warned him, Don't go back to your sin because... In response to your sin, you were uh, afflicted with paralysis and something even worse than that could befall you. So in that case, paralysis was caused by that individual's sin. But there's one even uh, really well-known passage, and that's in John 9. And remember the uh, question about the man who was born blind? The leader said, well, whose fault was it? Was it his fault that he was born blind? And that's, that's sort of an interesting question. How could it be his fault if he were born blind? I wanted to, you know, I wanted to ask him that question. Uh, or they said, or was it his parents' fault? And I could understand that. His parents had sinned and God had judged them by having a son that was born blind. What was our Lord's answer? Neither. Neither. This man was blind 
because God is going to be glorified. So we know that sickness, blindness, for example, but any sickness is not necessarily caused by sin. It can be caused, sin can cause physical maladies, but the physical maladies are not always the result of sin. That's the point I want to make, and that's what James is drawing out. If he has sinned, it may be that he has sinned, and his sickness is a result of that. But it may be he has not sinned. The one that I often remember is 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 30. Now, Paul is talking about those who were abusing the Lord's Supper. And what does he say about some of them? Some of you are sick, and some of you are, have fallen asleep. Well, that's Paul's word for they have died. That believers died. So because they had been abusing the Lord's Supper, not recognized the, the proper function of it and, and satisfying their sinful selfishness and so forth, he says, some of you are sick for that reason, and some of you have fallen asleep for that reason. So sin can cause illness, but not necessarily so. And illness can be a result of something not necessarily related to sin. Does that make sense? All right. Uh, James makes clear in verse 16 that it's not just the elders who can pray, but any believer can pray. Notice what he says in verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. Well, that's talking to the readers generally, not just to the elders, but to the readers, to all of us. To all of us. So here's, here's James' exhortation to all of us. Confess your sins. Why do that? Well, I don't want my sins to hinder someone from praying for me. If I've sinned against my brother and I, I'm sick and I want him to pray for me, I'm going to confess my sins to my brother so... He puts his whole heart into it when he's praying for me. Does that make sense? But also we know that sin can... I want to use my words carefully here. Uh, sin can be uh, something that prevents God or hinders God. I, I know it sounds strange. From hearing and answering my prayer. Uh, Peter makes that point in First Peter chapter 5. He talks about husbands... Uh, live with your wives according to knowledge and treat them with honor uh, so that your prayers are not hindered. All right? So husbands, we have a responsibility to take care of our spouse because if we don't do that, Peter has warned us, God will turn a deaf ear to our prayers. And I don't think any husband here this, this evening would ever want that. Would ever want that. God turning a deaf ear to our, deaf ear to our prayers. So, confess your sins so that prayer is not hindered. And then he says here, to us, and pray for one another. And the result is so that you may be healed. Now, we come now to verses 17 and 18. And the question, we're almost to the, almost to the end here. The question is, <coughs> how does Elijah fit into this? <laughs> He's talking about prayer and healing. How does Elijah fit in? Uh it's not addressing Elijah's healing anyone. 
it's addressing Elijah's praying. Well, I think James's point is that Elijah's prayer is an example of someone who prayed according to the will of God. What do I mean by that? God revealed to Elijah, Elijah, I'm, I'm intending to withhold rain for a period of time. And then I'm intending to give rain after that period of time. And so Elijah prayed in response to the will of God as God had revealed that to Elijah. I think that's the function of this passage in this context. It's talking about the kind of prayer that's prayed in accordance to the will of God. That's why Elijah is mentioned here. He prayed in accordance to the revealed will of God, and it stopped raining. And he prayed again in accordance to the will of God, and it rained. So Elijah is an example of a prayer that is in accordance to the revealed will of God. Hold your place and turn to 1 John chapter 5. We'll come right back to James. Hold your place and turn to 1 John chapter 5. And we'll look at verse 14 and 15. First John chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. This is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Verse 15. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from him. John is saying the same thing that Elijah's illustration is communicating. If we ask anything according to his will, and I'm assuming if it's according to his will that we are to ask, it has to be according to his revealed will. That which he has revealed in his word is his will. If we conform our prayers to the revealed will of God, we can have confidence, John is saying, that he not only hears us, but gives us the very petitions, whatever we ask, the very petitions that we ask. That's why Elijah's, the illustration of Elijah is in this passage. It's recording for us a prayer that was in accordance with the revealed will of God. Now that brings us to my uh, statement at the bottom of page 3, prayer that results in divine healing. All right, prayer that results in divine healing. There are four elements that James has developed for us in this passage of the prayer that results in divine healing. That results in divine healing. Let's go through these. The first is found in James 5.15. James says, The prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. So what does it mean, the prayer offered in faith? The prayer offered in faith. Well, James actually helps us understand that from chapter 1. You might be familiar with chapter 1. Does anyone lack wisdom? Let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and does not reproach, and it will be given him. Wisdom will be given him. But what does the next verse say? But let him ask in faith. And he goes on, For the one who does not ask in faith should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. So what is asking in faith? It's asking 
God, with confidence, with full confidence, that God is able to hear and answer prayer. That's what it means to ask in faith. What does the uh, author of Hebrews say? Uh, Without faith, it is what? Impossible to please God for the one who comes to God. That's talking about prayer. For the one who comes to God must believe that he is God and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him in prayer. That's what it means to pray in faith. It means I pray confident, confident that God is able to hear and answer prayer and desires to do so. That's what it means to pray in faith. Any questions about that? Pray in faith. Any questions? All right. The second element. Number three there. The second element is an effective prayer. The expression effective refers to persistent prayer. Somebody was talking about that before the service this evening. Persistent prayer is one is a prayer that you continue to pray until God answers. That's persistent prayer. That's what Elijah did. Remember, after the drought, he prayed. He kept saying, Does you see anything? He prayed. He kept saying, do you see anything? He prayed. Finally, the guy says, yeah, I see a tiny little puff, a cotton ball in the sky. He says, run, it's going to shower. <laughs> so, the word effective, the word effective refers to persistent prayer. Persistent prayer. You know, our Lord mentions persistence in prayer in Luke chapter 11 and in Luke chapter 18. You remember the, uh, I think it's called the the importunate widow, is that? Yeah. You remember that? She keeps hammering away and finally says, you know, I'm going to give her what she asks. I'm tired of resisting. That's not God. It's just saying, just as that woman persisted, that's the lesson. Just as that woman persisted, you persist until God answers. Why, why, why is it that God doesn't answer the first time we pray? Why is it that sometimes God takes a long time to answer our prayers? Well, God is in, in the business of strengthening our faith. And persistence in prayer is an exercise of faith. Why do I say that? If you did not believe that God hears and answers prayer, if you did not believe God could hear your prayer and answer your prayer, you would stop praying. The very fact that you persist in prayer is a strengthening of your faith because you are expressing your confidence by persisting in that particular prayer that God hears and answers and He's going to hear and answer your prayer. So sometimes He allows us to persist in prayer because it strengthens our faith so that when He does answer, we say, Thank you, Lord. If He, if he answered quickly every time, we might take it for granted. If you're like I am, we might say, Thanks, Lord. After a while, when He answers prayer, you say, Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. All right, so prayer and faith, persistent prayer. Third element, number four, righteous person. Now, a righteous person is simply a believer who's endeavoring to live in humble obedience to God's Word. Endeavoring. Not talking about sinless perfection. He's not. All right, he's not talking about it. He's talking about a believer, a sinner saved by grace like I am and like you are, those who are endeavoring to live in humble obedience to God's Word. So a saved individual 
endeavoring to live in humble obedience to God's Word. That's the third element. Next page, the fourth and last element. Same page, okay. It must be asked according to the will of God. So if those four elements are met, and those are the four elements that James identifies for us, if those four elements are met, then the promise in verse 15 comes to pass. Will heal the sick without exception if those four elements are met. If those four elements are met, then God will respond to that prayer and heal without exception. Now, this is number six there. Prayer prayed in faith. Prayer that is effectual or persists. Prayer by a righteous person. And prayer that is according to the revealed will of God. If those four elements are in our prayer, God will heal, period. James tells us that in verse 15. Now, I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking. All right, so let's go there. Let's go there. What about Paul? Well, that's a good question. I'm glad you asked that question. What about Paul? Why wasn't he healed? Did Paul, did Paul, did Paul pray in faith? He, he tells us that, didn't he? Did he persist in prayer? He did, didn't he? Uh, was he a righteous individual? So why wasn't he healed? It wasn't God's will. It was not God's will. God tells him that. No, Paul, my strength is perfected in that weakness of yours, and my grace is sufficient, Paul. You got that as a reminder not to be exalted beyond what you should. Yeah. So it wasn't according to God's will. Well, that just means uh, we got another more difficult question to ask then. How do we know if it's God's will? How do we know if it's God's will? I mean, he hasn't revealed in his word. I've got a friend, Tim Eli. He's, he's in Detroit receiving hospital with third-degree burns on his legs. I'm praying for that brother to be healed. But God hasn't revealed in his word what his will is for Timothy. He hasn't. So how do I know if it's God's will? Now, I'm going to give you my answer. You're not going to like it. I'm going to tell you right, right up front, you're not, I don't like the answer, but I'm convinced it's the right answer. How do we know it's God's will? When I pray and God does what? He heals. That's the only way I know if it's God's will. That's the only way. I continue to pray until God answers with healing or with no healing. Does that make sense? All right, now that brings us to a more difficult question. These questions keep getting harder. Is it time for me to go yet? <laughs> Why pray? You're looking at me, I'm looking at you. Why pray if God heals according to his will? It's a good answer. That's a good answer. Here's my answer. It's the same answer. If God heals, we're, we're at why pray if God heals according to his will, only according to his will. If God heals only and always according to his will, why pray? Well, here's the answer. Believers are to pray because Scripture commands prayer. James 5.14 says the elders are to pray. 5.16 says believers, pray for one another. That's a command. Pray for one another. In addition, and here's the important, here's the important point. God has ordained our prayers as the means to accomplish His divinely appointed ends. Let me illustrate. 
I, I don't know where you are, and if you're not where I am, forgive me for using this as an illustration. I mean that sincerely. If you're not where I am, forgive me. But I, use, I see the word elect in Scripture. All right, I see the word elect in Scripture. And it's my understanding that unless somebody gives the gospel to those individuals, they will not be saved. Now, the word elect, to me, means that somehow God has chosen them for salvation. I don't know how else to see it. If you see it differently, forgive me, that's how I see it. But Paul tells us in Romans 10, unless, he says, how can they believe unless they hear the gospel? And how can they hear the gospel unless somebody is sent? And how is somebody sent unless God raises them up and sends them? So just as it's necessary, the means, evangelism, so that individuals can be saved, God's end, evangelism, the means. Salvation of the lost, the end. Does that make sense? The means for the end? Prayer is God's means. Healing is God's end. All right? That's why you and I should pray. God has appointed our prayers as the means to accomplish his eternal purposes that include the healing of our sick brothers and sisters in Christ when it's according to his will. All right? So let's conclude, and I'll have some questions, and we'll let you go. So how should we pray if someone is will, ill, and we don't, obviously we don't know God's will? I had a dear brother, you probably don't know, his name is Rod Decker. Does anybody know Rod Decker? Pastored up in Carroll, Nathum, Carroll, is it Carroll? Carroll, Nathum? Carroll. Uh, <clears throat> went to our seminary, uh, pastored for 10 years in Carroll, then went to a school in Clark's Summit, Pennsylvania. Does that ring a bell? Clark's Summit, Baptist Bible College and Seminary. Anyway, he taught there 20 years, got cancer. Uh, didn't discover it until it was like third or fourth stage. This, this Rod is a dear brother. I mean, a dear brother. Uh, if I could pick a brother, I'd have picked him. I don't have a, a, a you know a natural brother. I've got many Christian brothers. Several of them here. Rod is a dear brother. I didn't know what God's will was. So how do I pray? Well. I poured out my heart to the Lord that God would raise Rod up from that cancer. I poured out my heart to the Lord. I did not pull punches. I did not equivocate. I poured out my heart to the Lord. Lord, I want you to heal Rod. How did I, how did I end my prayer? I did not know what God's will was. How did I end my prayer? The same way our Lord ended his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Lord, nevertheless, not my will be, but thy will be done. Does that make sense? That's how we should pray. Pour out our heart. Let's not be lukewarm about it. If I'm sick, I don't want you being lukewarm about it. <laughs> I want you on your knees. Pour out your heart to the Lord. Express the zeal and earnestness of your heart. But in your prayer, Lord, not my will, your will be done.
You know, we should be motivated to prayer for the sick. As I've mentioned, because God has ordained our prayers as a means to accomplish His eternal purposes. And James, earlier in this book, cautions us about failing to pray. What does he say in chapter 2? You have not because you what? Say it again, nice and loud. You ask not. That is such a sobering statement. Now, I know he goes on. He goes on and says, or you ask and you don't receive because you ask with what? Wrong motives. We have to ask with right motives. We have to ask according to the will of God, James 1 John 5. But let's just focus on that one statement. You have not because you ask not. I don't want that said of me. I I don't want it ever said of me, especially if I've got a dear brother or sister who's going through some difficult sickness. You have not because you ask not. So we ought to be motivated because God desires to give good gifts to his children uh, Matthew chapter 7, verse 11, give good gifts to his children who what? Who ask him. Who ask him. God loves to give good gifts. You you remember that verse? Do you guys remember that verse? He says, if you being good, excuse me, if you being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. We do, don't we? I spoiled my two kids. I'm spoiling my grandkids. I being a sinner, evil, know how to give good gifts to my children. What what does our Lord say? How much more? How much more? Will your Father in heaven give good gifts to them who ask? That's why we pray. God delights to hear and answer prayer. He delights delights to give good gifts. And we don't want it said of us, we have not because we ask not. Number four, James' focus is captured by this statement, the effectual prayer of the righteous can accomplish much. And the reason it can accomplish much is because we pray to the true and living God and He is pleased to use our prayers to accomplish His eternal purposes. As James says, pray for one another so that you may be healed. All right, that's the best shot I've got. I hope it was an encouragement to you tonight to know how to pray and and to pray and to pray. Any questions? I know we're a little over time. Uh, I I might not be invited back for another two years. (laughs) <laughs> any any other questions before we uh, pull the plug here? Oh. Turn it over to you, John. <laughs>